0: This is Steve Lawson, and I want to welcome you to Men Who Rock the World. It's an exciting podcast that studies the lives and the legacies of great men in centuries past who have been used by God to turn the world upside down. Uh, These men are reformers. They're Puritans. They are preachers during the Great Awakening. Uh, They have been used even during the evangelical era. And so, I want to be able to, to introduce you to them and for you to come under the Uh, the influence of their lives. Um, I have had the opportunity to write biographies uh, on many of these men and to spend a year just researching and and learning about how God used them so mightily. I have the opportunity to to lecture in seminaries and to speak uh, in church pulpits on on these great men, and I've even visited on-site leading tour groups where really history was made. The importance of knowing church history cannot be overstated. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said that other than the Bible itself and theology, that the most important thing that a Christian should know is church history. So I want you to join me in this podcast in learning how these great men of faith were so greatly used. God bless you. All right, it's time for us uh, to begin. I'm excited for us to spend this time together. And what a wonderful afternoon we're going to be able to spend together. I know that you must love the Word of God and preaching of the Word of God. And we will look at one of our older brothers in the faith, John Calvin, and we will see how God so mightily used him, and I trust that we will learn some things regarding how God wired him to be the expositor that he was, I think as we would begin, it would be most appropriate for us to begin in a word of prayer. Our great God, we humble ourselves beneath Your mighty right hand and ascribe to You all glory and all honor. We pray that You would use these next minutes in a very strategic way in our lives that You would use them to impact our hearts and our souls, that we might become men who are so devoted and committed to the teaching and the preaching of the Word of God even all the more. And we pray that You would use the example of this man, John Calvin, to light a fire within our soul that would burn even brighter, that we would be committed to the exposition of the Word of God. We pray this in the name of Him who is King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ, amen. Well, I welcome you to our seminar, The Expository Genius of John Calvin. And I have the joy of giving an overview first of his life, and then I want to overview his commitment to expository preaching. I was not certain if the book would be here on time. I woke up this morning with a headache at three o'clock in the morning and so I spent all that time wisely uh, going back through my notes and really what I'm going to do in in large measure will be draw much from the book. So if you have a copy of the book, you'll have much of what I'll be saying. And if not, uh, I would urge you, if you can, to go pick up a copy and I think you will find it most encouraging. Towering over the centuries of time, there stands one figure of such monumental importance that He continues to command our attention and He arouses our intrigue even five hundred years after He passed off the scene. His name is John Calvin, and perhaps no other name in all of church history stands so tall as this name. Philip Melanchthon, who was one of the Reformers, referred to John Calvin simply as the theologian. And that's what Calvin was. He was, I believe, the most distinguished theologian of the entire Reformation, and I think really the most distinguished theologian of all church history. There are so many great men who have given their testimony regarding the effectiveness and the power of Calvin's ministry, and it seems like the greater the man, the more convinced he is of the greatness of the ministry of John Calvin. Charles Haddon Spurgeon needs no introduction with us, easily the greatest Baptist preacher who ever lived. I believe the greatest preacher of the English language, the prince of preachers, Charles Spurgeon said, "'Among all those who have been born of women, there has not risen a greater than John Calvin.'" "'No age before him ever produced his equal, and no age afterwards has seen his rival.'" That is a staggering testimony from the Prince of Preachers. Spurgeon went on to say, "'John Calvin propounded truth more clearly than any other man who ever breathed,' and that would certainly be outside of the canonical writers. He knew more Scripture and explained it more clearly.'" If Mr Spurgeon says this of John Calvin then I want to learn more about this man. John Knox who was the founder of the reformed church in Scotland and the man most noted in Scotland's entire history spent some time he was a Marian exile who fled from Scotland under the reign of Bloody Mary came and to Geneva and sat at the feet of Calvin and sat under his ministry Saw the church, saw the academy and all that was going on. And he said, Calvin's Geneva is, quote, the most perfect school of Christ that ever was in the earth since the days of the apostle. And Knox went on to say about Calvin that he was, quote, that singular instrument of God, meaning he stands out of all church history as the towering influence. Richard Baxter, who is one of the golden Puritans who wrote the Reformed pastor has said, quote, "'I know no man since the Apostles' days whom I value and honor more than Calvin.'" And John Broaddus, who was one of the founding professors of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary where Al Mohler is presently the president and served as one of the early presidents of the Southern Baptist Convention, He is the one who taught homiletics and taught biblical preaching at Southern Seminary, the Broadman Holman Publishing House is named in part for John Broadus. Son of Calvin, Calvin gave the ablest, soundest, clearest expositions of scripture that had been ever seen for a thousand years, unquote. I know of Many Southern Baptist conventions you could attend now and read that very quote and be stoned to death. I am that man. (laughs) But John Broadus, I think, gives clear testimony to the giftedness of Calvin by the grace of God. Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield, one of the Princetonian divines, one of the greatest theologians in the history of the church, as I walk up the stairs into my study at home, that is over the garage, there hangs a picture of Benjamin Breckinridge Warfield in his full academic regalia as a reminder to me to be committed to sound doctrine every time I teach the Word of God. Warfield said, quote, "'No man ever had a profounder view of God than Calvin.'" No man ever unreservedly surrendered himself to the divine direction, unquote. I believe that that is really the true genius of John Calvin, is that no one ever had a profounder view of God than did Calvin. William Cunningham, the great professor of church history at New College, Edinburgh, Scotland, said, John Calvin was by far the greatest of the Reformers... Calvin is the man who, next to St. Paul, has done most to mankind, unquote. That's a staggering quote of monumental proportions. And Philip Schaff, we have all read of his eight volume set on church history. I commend it to you. Schaff, this luminous church history professor, has written Calvin was an exegetical genius of the first order. His commentaries are unsurpassed for originality, depth, perspicuity, soundness, and permanent value. He said, Luther was the king of translators, but Calvin was the king of commentators. John Murray, professor of systematic theology, Westminster Seminary, said, Calvin was the exegete of the Reformation... That is to say, he dug deeper into the Word of God and excavated out of the Scripture the meaning of the text. Calvin was the exegete of the Reformation and in the first rank of biblical exegetes of all time. Calvin himself virtually, single-handedly brought the church back to the study of the Word of God in the original languages. S.M. Houghton, who's written a marvelous book entitled Sketches from Church History, has said regarding the study of Calvin, it has been said that to omit Calvin from the history of Western civilization is to read history with one eye shut, unquote. It's to be in total denial of reality. It's to be in total denial of world history, much less church history, to read with one eye closed towards Calvin. Theodore Beza, who followed Calvin in Geneva, said that Calvin was the Christian Hercules, well, I want to give you first just a brief overview of the life of John Calvin. It would be good for us to take a moment just to re-familiarize ourself with who this man is. In just two years, it will be the 500-year anniversary of his birth into the world. He was born in Noyon, France, which is just 60 miles northeast of Paris in northern France in 1509. That would make Luther 26 years old when Calvin was born. Luther was a first-generation reformer, Calvin a second-generation reformer, and then Knox being a third-generation reformer. Calvin was well-educated. In fact, he studied at the most famous university in all of Europe, the University of Paris, where he received his M.A. degree. Then he went to the University of Orleans to study law at his father's insistence, and then transferred to Bordeaux law where he received a law degree in 1532. There he received the nickname, the plaintiff case, as he received an education that was the finest that Europe had to offer at the time. He entered the University of Paris at age 14 and perfected Latin and grammar and syntax and became a young scholar. And I think it should serve as an encouragement to all of us to study hard, to love the Lord our God with all of our mind and soul and strength and to devote ourselves to the study of the Word of God. And it ought to be an encouragement to us, even in training our children, that they would be well-educated and well-taught as much as providence would allow. And Calvin was a reformer in the making. Even as a young man, he's unconverted. He grew up in the Catholic church, and yet God was giving him the tools with powers of analysis and command of language before he even was brought to saving faith in Christ. He was converted to Christ while he was in college and by his own testimony, and Calvin never spoke about himself. And so even constructing insight into parts of this bibliography is very difficult because he never used himself in an illustration. He never spoke about himself. It's really a mark of true humanity. It's not merely that you only speak of yourself in a negative light. You just don't speak of yourself at all, period. And that was Calvin. The preface to his commentary to the book of Psalms, he says that he was converted by, quote, a sudden conversion. God turned my heart I was immediately inflamed with so intense a desire to make progress, and from the moment he walked through the narrow gate, he was so fully committed to the lordship of Jesus Christ that he was literally on fire for God. He joined the Protestant movement, he left Catholicism, he renounced it, and rightly so, and he was forced to flee France while still a a young man, still in his mid-twenties. It is believed that he wrote the inauguration speech for Nicholas Cop, who was the rector of the rector of University of Paris. It was a very reformational message that spoke of Christ as being the sole mediator between God and man, and it was uh, a direct assault upon the priesthood and the Roman Catholic false gospel. And once it was known that Calvin, as a young man, but a young Christian, but months in the faith, perhaps but years in the faith, when it was discovered that he was the true author or his influence was heavy in that message, the police came for him in the middle of the night, and he was forced to escape out a window, tying together bedsheets and lowered himself down the wall, and his life was marked out even as a brand-new Christian as one who would be the object of much persecution in this world, as he would stand for the truth of the Word of God. And let me encourage all of us at this point, no one has ever made a mark in church history who has not paid a great price. And if you want God to use you in your ministry, it will always come at a price. And popularity is for those who have little influence in this world. Calvin was marked out early. He traveled for a year anonymously uh, uh, doing evangelistic work, and he went to Basel, Switzerland. And there in 1534, he began to write the Institutes, what would become his theological tour de force John Calvin wrote the Institutes of the Christian Religion at only age twenty-six. In fact, he wrote it when he was twenty-five. It wasn't published until he was age twenty-six. He studied in solitude there, and it was the most famous work of the Reformation. It was really the magnum opus of the Reformation. I think exceeding even Luther's work on the bondage of the will. It was his masterpiece. It, the, the institutes of the Christian religion were, was dedicated to the king of France. France, uh, Francis I, really to give him, he was a Roman Catholic king to give him an understanding of what is true Christianity because the believers and the, the Huguenots were being persecuted in France, and he reasons with the king in the dedica- dedicatory letter at the beginning of his Institutes that in essence he said, "O oh king." If you only knew what true biblical Christianity is, you would cease the slaughtering of the true believers in the Protestant Reformation. And so the Institutes were dedicated to the King of France, and they underwent five revisions in future years And a strange providence of God. The hand of God was upon Calvin. The invisible hand of God was upon his life in an extraordinary way. And he was traveling from Paris, headed to Basel, and there was a war that was going on. And some of the king's soldiers put up roadblocks, and unknown to Calvin, he could not pass on, and he was redirected in the middle of the night to the city that would become his base of operation for the rest of his life. He went to Geneva with no intention of going there. He went into the inn there to only spend the night to get up the next morning and continue his way. And while he was in the inn, a fiery redhead named William Farrell recognized him. The entire city of Geneva had just voted to abandon the Catholic dogma and to officially now become a Protestant city, 1536. Farrell was an evangelist, and what they needed was a Bible teacher. What they needed was a theologian. And William Farrell said to John Calvin, you must stay and teach this city in Reformed doctrine. John Calvin was very bashful, he was a very shy, introverted person, just simply wanted to withdraw to the corner of the library and to be left alone, that he might edit his works and write. And John Calvin said, No, it's not for me to have a position of public ministry in the spotlight like this. And William Farrell said, Then the curse of God be upon your life. Now, John Calvin would have to be the least mystical man who has ever lived. And he said he felt it was the finger of God that was pointing at him. And John Calvin said, I will stay." That's how God got the great Geneva, Genevan Reformer there. And John Calvin became first the teacher, and then in a few months, he was installed as the pastor of the church at Geneva. And he committed the church to the ministry of the Word of God. And one unique distinctive was he fenced off the Lord's table and said, only those who confess faith in Christ and who live a life that is consistent with their Christian testimony may come to the Lord's table, and it is fenced off from those who are living in open sin and will not confess and repent of their sin." And the people of Geneva, although they had voted to become Reformed, had not yet been regenerated, and they threw off this yoke of discipline. And John Calvin, after two years, in 1538, he was run out of his pulpit. For any of you here today who have ever gone through the agonizing, painful experience of being put out of your church ministry, I have gone through such an experience. It is very painful. And John Calvin was put out of his ministry for standing on the Word of God they put out feral as well. And John Calvin, quite frankly, was relieved. He now thought he was, had been excused from public life, and now he could withdraw and go to Strasbourg and now sit in private and study the Word of God and write commentaries and to be left alone. And so 1538, for the next three years, he went to Strasbourg. He pastored there. He pastored a church of French speaking people there. He wrote his first commentary on Romans and he married his wife, Idolette. The church or the city fathers in Geneva gradually became more reformed during that three-year period of time and they issued an invitation for Calvin to return to be the pastor at Geneva and Calvin declined. He said literally, quote, unquote, I died a thousand deaths upon the cross every day I was in Geneva. Geneva was the last place in the world that he wanted to go. They presumed upon him a second time, he said, no, a third time, and the council of other godly men there in Strasbourg said, you must go back. And John Calvin, at that point in his life, he saw his entire life in a very unique way as being entirely offered up to God. There was a logo, his own personal emblem that came out of that experience. You know, Luther has the Luther rose that represented his life. Calvin's emblem is a hand, and in the hand that is being offered up to God, there is a heart. And it is Calvin's heart being offered up to God that he will obey God promptly and sincerely. We wonder why God used John Calvin so strategically to affect Western civilization, B.B. Warfield was right. No man was ever so surrendered to do the will of God as John Calvin. Reluctantly, he went back to Geneva in 1541 where he remained the rest of his life. And it was there that John Calvin, in essence, became John Calvin. Geneva became the hub of the Reformation. Refugees from all over the, the Reformed world that are a world that was gradually becoming Reformed. Under great duress and persecution, believers from France, from Scotland, from England, from sur- surrounding areas in, in Europe began to come to Geneva for political asylum. And there, in the providence of God, they came under the teaching and the influence of John Calvin. And then when Scotland or England or the political condition changed in those other places, the people would go back, and as they would go back, they would take the teaching that they had received from the Word of God under the ministry of John Calvin, and his influence in that part of the world was instantly spread. He opened the Geneva Academy, which became a a training place for men in the ministry. And out of the Geneva Academy, there were men that went back to their homelands, many of whom knew that when they went back, they would be facing a martyr's death. The Geneva Academy became known as Calvin's School of Death because upon enrolling The men would come under such conviction and influence of the Word of God. They felt such a sacred stewardship of the truth that had been entrusted to them. Uh, They felt compelled that, I cannot remain here where I am with the truth. I must go back to my native land there to preach the Word of God and there to plant churches. And historians tell us that some one thousand churches were planted as a result of men who went back to their homes." There the Geneva Bible was also translated into the English language. It became the first study Bible ever written. The notes, rather than being at the bottom of the page, the notes were on the side margins and it preceded the King James Version of the Bible. In fact, the King James Version of the Bible came about as a violent reaction against the Geneva Bible the Geneva Bible with the study notes, Calvin had taught that man owes greatest allegiance to God and not to the king. And King James did not like that. He wanted greatest allegiance to be given to him. And so his counselors told him that you need to come up with your own translation of the Bible into the English language so that the Christian world will stop reading these study notes and no longer give greatest allegiance to God. The Geneva Bible became the very Bible that the pilgrims carried on the Mayflower as they came to America, and it was the Bible of greatest influence for the next hundred years. Calvin died May 27, 1654. This incredibly humble man requested that he be buried in an unmarked grave so that all glory alone would be given to God." It's a brief overview of his life, and before we come to his preaching, I want to talk just for a moment about the Reformation of preaching, because what the Reformation was, was in its practical unfolding, it was a Reformation of the pulpit. It was a referendum on the pulpit. And John brought us in his wonderful work on the history of preaching noted that there were four marks of the Reformation. It was, he said, a reformation of preaching to this time as the church came out of the dark ages. Preaching was no more. In fact, The pulpit was moved over to the to the side, and and the communion table, which was perceived to be a a means of saving grace, was put in the very center, and the word of God was displaced. And the priest would not even speak in the language of the people, would conduct this in Latin. And what Luther did and what Calvin did brought about a revival of just sheer preaching. The revival that in the Reformation that took place under Calvin preaching once again was moved back to the very center place of the church. In fact, the architecture of the church changed in the Reformation, and they took the pulpit and they brought it back to the very center of the building so that every sight line and every line was brought to the center place where there would be an open Bible laying on the pulpit, and it was a statement of faith, sola scriptura. Scripture alone. That's what the Reformation brought about. And not merely a revival of preaching, but a revival of biblical preaching. And there was a restoration of expository preaching. And Zwingli began to preach through Matthew and Martin Luther would preach on Sundays, a professor during the week lecturing verse by verse through books in the Bible, and then on Sundays at the college church began to preach verse by verse through the gospel of John and Romans and Galatians and the Psalms and Calvin. And we'll speak in a moment. This luminous expositor, John Calvin, began to systematically preach through the Word of God, and he brought a total of 4,000 sermons in Geneva. It was also a revival of controversial preaching. Whenever you preach the full counsel of God, it will be provocative. It will be challenging. And the Reformation became known for its declaration of the entirety of the Word of God. Not only was there sola scriptura, Scripture alone, but there was also tota scriptura, meaning all of Scripture. Nothing was skipped over. And as they would preach verse by verse through books in the Bible, they preached all of the hard sayings of Scripture. It was controversial preaching. And finally, it was a revival of preaching upon the doctrines of grace. You cannot preach through the Bible without preaching the sovereignty of God in salvation. And the doctrines of grace flourished because these men came back to the book and came back to preaching the supremacy of God. And so it was a revival of preaching, of biblical preaching, of controversial preaching, and preaching upon the doctrines of grace. And so I want, us to, I want us to talk about the expository genius of John Calvin. I want us to talk about the kind of preaching that he brought to the pulpit at Geneva. And so as we think first about his approach to the pulpit, step number one, all of our preaching is first marked by our presuppositions and our commitments before we ever step into the pulpit. You tell me what is the fire in your bones and what is the commitment of your soul before you ever step into the pulpit to preach, and I will tell you the direction that your preaching will go." And so with John Calvin, there were certain core values that shaped and marked his preaching. And number one, he was committed to biblical authority. He said, quote, the minister's whole task is limited to the ministry of God's Word. That is a radical paradigm shift from what had been going on in the church as they were preaching the authority of the pope and as they were preaching the authority of ecclesiastical councils and as they had been preaching the authority of the church fathers, now Calvin and the other Reformers said, no, the pastor's sole commitment is to the authority of the Word of God. Merle Dubonnet, the great church historian, said, in Calvin's view, everything that had not for its foundation the Word of God was futile. Calvin said, when we enter the pulpit, it is not so that we may bring our own dreams and fancies with us. Calvin said, as soon as men depart, even in the smallest degree from God's Word, they cannot preach anything but falsehoods, vanities, errors, and deceits. It begins with biblical authority. Hughes Oliphant Old explains, quote, Calvin's sermons reveal a high sense of the authority of Scripture. T.H.L. Parker, who is probably the most renowned authority on the preaching of Calvin, said, quote, for Calvin, the message of Scripture is sovereign. Sovereign over the congregation and sovereign over the preacher. His humility is shown by his submitting to this authority. So it begins with biblical authority. Schaff said Calvin had the profoundest reverence for the Scripture's In fact, Calvin said, we owe to the Scripture the same reverence that we owe to God. And he went on to say, quoting Augustine, when the Bible speaks, God speaks. Second, divine presence. Calvin believed that in the preaching of the Word of God as the church would gather together and the man of God would stand up with the Word of God empowered by the Spirit of God, that there was an extraordinary manifestation of the glory of God put on display through the truth that was being preached. Calvin believed in a literal presence in the taking of the Lord's Supper in the sense that there was a unique and special manifestation of God to the people. God was making Himself known by the Word and by the Spirit. And he believed this about the preaching of the Word of God. As Calvin put it, so often as the Word of God is set before us, we must think that God is present and doth call us. Every time I step into the pulpit, or not every time, but most every time, I have one thought. There are two who are standing in this pulpit. And God is with me and God has never been more with me than when I stand before His people with an open Bible to proclaim His message. God stands in His messenger to enable him to preach His Word. This is what Calvin believed. Old writes, according to this doctrine of real presence, God is present in the reading and preaching of His Word. It's not a mystical thing that Calvin believed. He simply believed that God unusually was putting His glory on display and that God was unusually speaking to the hearts of His people whenever His Word was being properly handled and proclaimed. That was Calvin's view. And so whenever he stepped into the pulpit, he believed he was stepping onto holy ground to open the Holy Bible and that this was a sacred task that had been entrusted to him and the power of the Holy Spirit would accompany the ministry of the Word. He also believed in the pulpit, the priority of the pulpit or pulpit priority. He was a stickler on this. Calvin said, "'Whenever we see the Word of God purely preached and heard, and the sacraments sacraments administered according to Christ's institution, there it is not to be doubted a church of God exists.'" In other words, a group that calls itself a church but does not preach and teach the Word of God is not really a church. It's just a social club. There is only a church where the Word of God is proclaimed and the voice of God is, is heard. Calvin wrote, quote, the truth of God is maintained by the pure preaching of the gospel. God will have His church trained up by the pure preaching of His Word. James Montgomery Boyce noted this, quote, "'When the Reformation swept over Europe in the sixteenth century, there was an immediate elevation of the Word of God in Protestant services. John Calvin particularly carried this out with thoroughness.'" Now listen to this, "'Ordering that the altars along the centers of the Latin mass be removed from the churches and that a pulpit with a Bible on it be placed at the center of the building.'" This was not to be on one side of the room, but at the very center where every line of the architecture would carry the gaze of the worshiper to the book, which alone contains the way of salvation and outlines the principles upon which the church of the living God is to be governed. He believed in the centrality and the primacy of the Word of God. And by the way, Luther said, there is one non-negotiable for any worship service, and it is the preaching of the Word of God. Luther went on to say, the church has no business to ever meet when the Word of God is not taught. Calvin embraced that. And then fourth, still by way of his approach to the pulpit, sequential exposition. He believed in sequential exposition, meaning verse by verse, phrase by phrase through the Scripture. I have listed on the overhead the expositions of Calvin's preaching, and it's very clear to see this man was committed to preaching verse by verse through books in the Bible. I dare say any man in the history of the church could ever rival this kind of a commitment. And as we look at this, you may be doing the math on this and saying there's no way one man could preach this many sermons in the age that he had to live here upon the earth, but we must understand that Calvin preached from the New Testament on Sunday morning, he preached from the New Testament or Psalms on Sunday afternoon, and then he preached every morning of the week, every other week. He would preach the Old Testament Monday morning, Tuesday morning, Wednesday morning, Thursday morning, Friday morning at 6 a.m. And so, therefore, while he prioritized the New Testament, he preached many more sermons out of the Old Testament because there are obviously more days of the week than there are Sundays. But note this, eighty-nine sermons from Acts, sixty-five from the Gospels. That's where he died. He died preaching the synoptic Gospels. He preached through Jeremiah, Lamentations, the Minor Prophets and Daniel, 174 hundred Consecutive sermons through Ezekiel. 159 sermons through Job, and you can still buy those in their original uh, typesetting from Banner of Truth. Through Deuteronomy, 200 consecutive sermons. Isaiah, 353 consecutive sermons. In fact, while he was in the middle of this sermon, of this series, he became ill and was out of the pulpit for six months, and when he came back, he picked it up at the next verse. Genesis, 123 sermons, short series on Judges. First Samuel, 107 sermons. Second Samuel, 87 sermons, a series on 1 Kings, 46 on 1 and Second Thessalonians. First and second Corinthians, 186 sermons. You can see this. The pastoral epistles, 86 sermons. Galatians 43, Ephesians 48. And interestingly, when John Knox was on his deathbed, he asked his wife to bring a copy of Calvin's sermons through the book of Ephesians, and to sit by his bedside as he spent his last lingering days upon this earth and his last hours, and John Knox had his wife read out loud for the encouragement of his soul Calvin's sermons on Ephesians. Micah 28, Psalm 119, 22, Divinity of Christ 20, Ten Commandments, 16 sermons. He was committed to consecutive exposition. Men, I want to encourage you, as I know surely most of you are so encouraged to preach verse by verse through books in the Bible because God sets the menu for the church when you do it that way. The full counsel of God is already built into the way the Word is written. Now, step two, preparing the heart, I'm going to have to pick up the pace here a little bit. As Calvin stepped into the pulpit, he understood that to preach the Word of God requires a commitment of the entire inner man. You bring all that you are to the pulpit to preach the Word of God, and nothing is more demanding than the exposition of Scripture. And so, he was committed to having a diligent mind. He was thorough in his study of the Word. He said the pastor ought to be prepared by long study for giving to the people as out of a storehouse a variety of instruction concerning the Word of God. He said we must all be pupils of the Holy Scripture. And he went on to say that whenever the pastor ceases studying the Word of God, he ceases owning the power of God upon his ministry. It's interesting, his commitment, this diligent mind to the study of the Word of God, in the institutions that he wrote, the institutions of the Christian religion, there are more than three thousand Scripture references or quotations in that work. He wrote commentaries on the Bible as they originally were printed. It was a forty-five-volume set, each volume containing some four hundred pages. He was voluminous and his mind being focused on the Word of God. But he also had a devoted heart as well, and at the very, at the very center place of his heart there was a zeal for the glory of God. He was passionate for the glory of God. In fact, he saw his entire ministry as being that of a guardian of the glory of God. And he was inflamed in his soul and his heart. He was a man of prayer. He held God with such reverential awe. His devotion was so strong. He said, I offer my heart to God as a true sacrifice to the Lord. Do not think of Calvin as a cold, clinical, stoic professor sitting in an ivory tower disconnected from the heat of passion for the glory of God. He was a man who was alive. And full of zeal for God. Also a relentless will. And that just leaps off the page. In fact, as you study church history, the men whom God uses the most, this is a reoccurring theme, they are driven men for the glory of God. They are relentless. Last year we looked at George Whitfield together, and the man abounded in energy to serve God. John Calvin, it was. It was. He was unwavering in his determination to minister the Word of God to the people of God, and that despite much difficulty in his life. We no doubt have heard of all the physical infirmities that Calvin had to face, colic, spitting of blood, uh, asthma, migraine headaches, kidney stones, gout hemorrhoids, etc. The man lived with such physical affliction, and yet it would not stop him in his determination to carry out the ministry of God. In fact, toward the end of his life, as he became bedridden, the elders of the church would come to his house and literally put him in a chair and carry him in the chair to the church and carry him to the pulpit. And that is how resolved he was to preach the Word of God. He was not even going to call in sick. And later, when he could not even be in the chair, they picked him up in the bed and carried him in his bed to the church that he might minister the Word of God. This man was full of abounding energy to serve God and he also faced much opposition don't think that calvin was a was a hero in his own congregation and in his own city of geneva the people in geneva were calvin was controversial in his own city the people began to name their dogs calvin and would call out calvin calvin in the streets Others nicknamed Calvin Cain. Others would fire rifle shots over the roof of his house. Others would threaten him in the pulpit. Calvin said, "'Dogs bark at me on all sides. Everywhere I am saluted with the name of Heretic.'" Spurgeon said, I do love that man of God, suffering all his life long, enduring not only persecutions from without, but a complication of disorders from within, and yet serving as master with all of his heart. Now, note the launching of the sermon. Let's talk just a moment about Calvin's launching of the sermon. It had a very direct beginning. And by that, I mean it was a very short introduction. He did not begin by giving a compelling quote from someone out in the world or someone out in culture. He did not begin with an antidote. He simply jumped immediately into the immediate context of the passage. And I have listed in my notes here uh, the opening sentences that I just took virtually randomly from his sermons from the book of Micah. And these are the introductory sentences from these sermons. Yesterday, we saw how Micah proclaimed God's judgment against all unbelievers. There's a lot of curb appeal in that opening sentence. Or the next message, you began this way, in this passage, Micah demonstrates in whose name he speaks, seeing that he attributes such power and authority to the Word of God. Or this morning, we saw that when God united us to the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, He was calling each of us to be a living sacrifice. Or we saw last time that we need to have confidence in the fact that the gospel is true, Or, this morning we made a thorough examination of the fact, although the law could not justify us or make us acceptable to God, it was not established in vain." So a very short porch to get into a large house. He wanted to immediately get into the Word of God as fast and as quick as he could with very little courtship on the front end. Next, you need to know he had an extemporaneous delivery. By that meaning, he had no written manuscript in the pulpit in front of him, neither did Calvin have any sermon notes before his eyes. We should not think that he was not prepared to preach, for he had long studied over the Word of God, and many of these books he had already written a commentary on. But as he stood in the pulpit to preach, he wanted to speak in a natural delivery is what he said and use very familiar words. And the church in this day had been deadened by pastors who just coldly read their notes in the pulpit. And Calvin said, no, I will stand in total dependence and reliance upon the Holy Spirit of God who will give me assistance in preaching the word. No sermon notes. I have sermon notes. I want you to know that. (laughs) I remember when I was at Reformed Theological Seminary, R.C. Sproul was my professor. He urged me and the whole class to preach without any sermon notes. And you are a naked man as you step into the pulpit in utter reliance upon the Holy Spirit. That was John Calvin. He established the scriptural context. Here is an example from one of his sermons on Galatians. Earlier we saw that the Galatians had gone astray despite having been faithfully taught by Paul, and what he would do would be summarize last week's message and the last several weeks' message and give an overview of the historical setting and the theological focus of these previous verses. And as he would preach through an epistle, he would preach either one verse, two verse, maybe three verses if he was preaching through a prophetic section like the Minor Prophets It would be a little bit larger section, maybe four, five, or six verses. And if he was preaching narrative like out of Samuel, for example, he might preach uh, ten verses. But he would summarize and pull it forward very much as John MacArthur does for us. And then he would state the theme. The central thrust. And great preaching always has this laser beam that runs through the very heart and center of the sermon that begins with the introduction and goes all the way to the conclusion, and the entire sermon stays on message. And there is no deviation and there is no wandering away from the central thrust of the message. That was Calvin, and with that brilliant mind, he stayed on target as he preached the Word of God, he was riveted as he was continually coming back to the next phrase in the text before him. Having laid this foundation in an introduction, then step number four, expounding the text itself. Calvin had a specific text that he was always expounding, and as I just said, the epistles, it would be one or two verses, usually maybe three. Sometimes two sermons on one or two verses with uh, the minor prophets or the major prophets, he would open that up a little bit, and then with narrative, he would take in a few more verses. T.H.L. Parker observes, quote, "'Calvin's text will vary in length from a single verse to a whole passage of perhaps ten or a dozen verses. Not infrequently, he will preach two or three consecutive sermons on one verse.'" But the general rule was for two or three verses a sermon to be in the the message. Clause by clause, verse by verse, the congregation was led through the epistle or the prophecy or the narrative. And by the way, I would really encourage you to read the sermons of Calvin because they read much differently than his commentaries. His commentaries are technical. His Commentaries are, are, are somewhat academic, very much attention given to the original language and the exegesis of it, and you're just hammering that out. But the sermons, uh, the, the sermons are directed to the common man sitting in the pew. There is much pastoral warmth, there is encouragement, there is passion. The sermons have energy, the sermons have life, the sermons have the warmth of Calvin as he preaches. He did so, next, with exegetical precision, and it was Schaff who said, Calvin is the founder of the modern grammatical, historical, exegetical method. Calvin believed it was the expositor's first duty to exegete the text and determine, quote, the one definite thought behind the biblical author, unquote. Calvin was so determined to do this that even when he set up his Geneva Academy, and this was unheard of, there was an emphasis upon Hebrew, Greek, and Latin and to dig it out of the original languages. Calvin said, let me give you this quote as I move quickly, since it is almost the interpreter's only task to unfold the mind of the writer whom he has undertaken to expound he misses his mark or at least strays outside his limits by the extent to which he leads his readers away from the meaning of his author previous to calvin you know there was the four different levels of interpretation the fourth being allegory and calvin dashed all of the allegory and said, all that matters is, what does the text say? Literal interpretation. Calvin was committed to, as I just said, a legitimate use of Scripture and the actual meaning of words in their historical grammatical context. Next, cross-references. He believed in the analogy of Of faith. The reformers called it the analogy of Scripture that Scripture interprets Scripture and all the Bible speaks without any contradiction and speaks with one voice as it speaks. And so cross references were brought to bear, persuasive reasoning. Time does not permit me, I don't think, to read examples of his persuasive reasoning. But he's doing far more than just word studies, far more than just cross references. He is, he is using that powerful mind to force the listener to think. And he would be setting truth at juxtaposition with error and showing how unreasonable it is to assume this false understanding of what the Scripture is teaching, and instead, this is the truth, and he would polarize, and he would take thoughts to their logical conclusion and show how how irrelevant and how irrational error is as he expounds the text of Scripture. And then also, he used reasonable deductions his next step, fifth step, crafting the sermon. I want to talk about this. This would be good for us to understand some of this. Good for me to be reminded of this. He used familiar words. Calvin could have very easily shot over the heads of the people and never hit them. He was preaching to Huguenots who had fled for their life out of France. He was preaching to Marion exiles who had to flee Scotland and England, and as they came and found themselves seated in the pew at Geneva, He spoke to them in the vernacular tongue of the day. His vocabulary is rich, but it is never obscure. He used an ordinary style. He used familiar language. There is little rhetorical flourish. He was not an orator. He was an expositor. His words are straightforward. The sentences are simple. It is basic sentence structure that is easy to digest, and yet he would not give up the high ground of using biblical language. As you read his sermons, you hear the biblical vocabulary of justify, elect, redeem, sin, repentance, grace, prayer, judgment, vivid expressions. He used the power of the metaphor. He painted pictures in the minds of people that were drawn from biblical images as well as the images of the day. His humor was very, very scarce because he felt the pulpit was not a place to play. He used stimulating language and at times biting sarcasm, and he used vivid language. And he would ask provocative questions. Sometimes the most powerful way to communicate in the teaching of the Word of God instead of making straightforward statements is to put it in the form of a question which causes the listener to give the answer. Here's an example. Calvin said, quote, "'What can a dead man do?' And surely we are dead until God quickens us again by means of faith and by the working of His Holy Spirit. Now if we are dead, what good can we do?" Another time he said, in that light, do we still want Jesus Christ to be our King? Do we? But we must ask, do we want God to acknowledge us as His people? Do we want Jesus Christ to declare us His own? Do we want Him to be our King? And with the asking of the questions, He was drawing the people into the text and causing their minds to be stimulated. He often used simple restatements. And as I have studied His sermons, there are certain phrases that are repeated, and I have detected this in John MacArthur's preaching. I've often said that Dr. MacArthur is the master of the restatement to read the verse and then to restate it in vernacular language. Calvin's signature phrase to introduce a restatement was, quote, it is as if the prophet were saying or, in effect, he is saying and then restate it in other words. In fact, he would often introduce these restatements by saying in other words. In other words, what the prophet is saying... And there were very few quotations. He rarely mentioned the name of another person and cited them in his sermon, although he had such an encyclopedic mind that he would often quote the church fathers and just draw from his memory and state what they said in a paraphrase, and he had no notes in front of him from which to read. He also spoke without an outline. He had no homiletical outline. Now, he had major headings of thought, and those were contained in his own thoughts, but he did not have a polished homiletical outline. He wanted there to be a natural sense to the flow of the message, so he literally is just flowing phrase by phrase through the text of Scripture, and he used seamless transitions. He had this masterful classical education and he sewed together paragraphs with some of these phrases. I've jotted them down at the same time. Furthermore, but let us consider. It is time now to summarize. In addition, we might wonder why. Now, it is quite true that, on the contrary, from this example, it can be seen that. Accordingly, we should infer from the foregoing that. But on the contrary, one finds. We now come to what the prophet adds. In the meantime, let us note. That is, I say, is how proud and presumptuous. Now the prophet specifically says to them, he was a master at moving from paragraph to paragraph and using these statements of transition. He had a focused intensity, and this was part of the genius of his preaching. It has been noted that, that other Reformers had a more captivating personality. He was very bashful and very shy, yet no one was more intently focused in the pulpit preaching the Word than Calvin, which begged for the attention of the listener. They were caught up in his concentration upon the text and that is a part of him maintaining this laser beam that ran through the center of the message as he stayed on the focus and did not let his mind deviate. He spoke with this kind of intensity. Step six, he was applying the truth of the Scripture. He used pastoral exhortations, and as he did, he most often spoke with plural pronouns, us and we. He included Himself in the application of Scripture and included Himself with the congregation. He was not distancing Himself but saying, this is what we must learn. This is how we must live. This is what we must do in response to the Word. And He put Himself in the very center of the application that He was calling upon the church to embrace. He called for personal examination. Here are just some examples from one sermon. We must all therefore examine our lives, not against one of God's precepts, but against the whole law. How can any of us truly say that we are blameless? He said the way to apply this text of Paul's to our instruction is as follows. Inasmuch as we are unaware of the sins that lurk within us, it is necessary for God to come and examine our lives. In short, an examination of our lifestyle cannot lie. He was continually calling upon His hearers to examine themselves whether they be in the faith. He often used loving rebuke. Time does not permit me to read these many loving rebukes, but for some of the French Huguenots who came to Geneva and escaped the Catholicism of France, and as some of them came, they continued in their same manner of lifestyle. And he said, for example, in this sermon that is before my eyes here, he just said, it would have been better if you had stayed in France rather than come here and continue to live with such open sin against God. It would have been better for you to have remained in the Catholic Church and under the lies of the Pope than to come and sit under the sound teaching of the Word of God and be merely a hearer of the Word, but not a doer of the Word. Calvin was continually bringing such loving, provocative rebuke. And then he used polemical confrontation at times against the enemies of the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And then as the final step, step seven, concluding the exposition, the sermons were building and building and building in their momentum as they approached the end, and he would conclude with a succinct summation as he would tell the people what they have learned today, as the Apostle Paul has spoken to us in his Word, and he would restate, and as we said yesterday, synthesize and summarize the text of Scripture. And then he would bring a pressing appeal, and he would press the truth of the Word of God before them. And this is how he concluded virtually every sermon, with this statement, now let us fall before the majesty of our great God, acknowledging our faults and praying that it may please Him to make us increasingly conscious of them, that we might seek a better repentance. Or this Pressing final conclusion, now let us fall before the majesty of our great God. And he would become at times very evangelistic and very passionate in calling sinners to faith in Jesus Christ. Listen to this example. Here, Calvin, at the end of his powerful exposition, he would preach for almost an hour We need to have such fear that we cannot find rest until the Lord Jesus has saved us. See, therefore, how good it is for us to be heavy laden. That is to say, to hate our sins and to be in such anguish over them that we feel surrounded by the pains of death, so that we may seek God in order that He might ease our burden. We must, however, seek Him in the knowledge that we cannot obtain salvation full or in part unless it is granted to us as a gift. Paul is not saying that we may find something of what we lack in Christ and supply the rest ourselves. He says we cannot be counted righteous through our own merits or works, but only through faith in Christ. Let us, therefore, understand that there is no salvation whatsoever outside of Jesus Christ, for He is the beginning and the end of faith, and He is all and in all. Let us continue in humility, knowing that we can only bring condemnation upon ourselves. Therefore, we need to find all that pertains to salvation in the pure and free mercy of God." We must be able to say that we are saved through faith. God the Father has appointed His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that He might be both the author and finisher of our salvation. We are to deny ourselves and give ourselves to Him wholly and completely, that all the praise might belong to Him. And then He concludes by saying, now. Let us fall before the majesty of our great God, acknowledging our sins and asking that He would make us increasingly aware of them, that we may hate them more and more and grow in repentance, a grace that we need to exercise all our lives. May we learn so to magnify His grace as it is seen to us in the Lord Jesus Christ that we might be completely taken up with it. May we grow in that trust until we are gathered up into our eternal home where we shall receive, face, reward. May He not only grant this grace to us, but to all peoples. And the passion and the energy of His soul in the preaching moment as he was in the pulpit and addressing this congregation before him, he pleaded for their souls. And then finally, the concluding prayer. Calvin, as he would come to the end, we have the record of his closing prayers. And what Calvin would do in these closing prayers, as he would call upon the congregation to bow their heads with his pastoral prayer, he would literally usher them up into the very presence of God and there leave them Coram Deo, face to face with God. Almighty God, our heavenly Father seeking that sense of antiquity, it has always pleased You to extend Your grace towards Your people, as perverse and rebellious as they are. Grant us Your grace today, that Your same Word may resound in our ears, and if at first we, sh- we should not profit from Your holy teaching as we ought, nevertheless, do not reject us. But by your Spirit subdue and so reign over our minds and affections, that being truly humbled and brought low, we may give glory to you, that your majesty, uh, that the majesty that is due you. So that being clothed by your love and fatherly favor, we submit ourselves totally to you, while at the same time embracing the goodness which you have provided and offered us in the Lord Jesus Christ that we might never doubt again that You alone are our Father until that day, that we rejoice in Your heavenly promise which has been acquired for us by the blood of Your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, amen." And with that closing pastoral prayer following His exposition, and it was a lengthy pastoral prayer that was God-centered, it was God-focused as He left the people literally in the presence of God. I agree with Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who said so long ago, We want again Luthers, Calvins, Bunyan's, Whitfields, men fit to mark eras whose names breathe terror in their foemen's ears. I pray that out of this gathering of strong men that the Lord will raise up expositors of the Word of the living God and that we will stand in a long line of godly men who have preceded us who have stood on the authority of the Word of God and have seen their pulpit as holy ground, who have nothing to say but the Word of God, and who will bring the straightforward teaching and preaching of the Word of God in such a way that the glory of God is magnified and that sinners are brought low and humbled under the majesty of the God on high. And that we, like John Calvin, will preach with all the passion of our soul and all the fervency of our heart and plead for men and women to submit their lives under the authority of the Supreme Lordship of Jesus Christ. And be that mouth for God that would offer on behalf of Him the free grace that only Christ Jesus gives to sinners If they will but acknowledge their sin and call upon His name." This is the expository genius of John Calvin. And I believe that we who are so attracted to Grace Community Church and John MacArthur and the Shepherd's Conference and sequential verse-by-verse preaching through books in the Bible that John Calvin is the Reformer with whom we most identify for he was more committed than any of the other Reformers to this sequential, continual, consecutive exposition verse by verse through the pages of Scripture. Is it any wonder that through the influence of this man that Scotland was shaken, England swayed under the influence of Calvin's pulpit, and when the pilgrims washed up on shore, New England of this land, they brought this reformed view of God, the sovereignty of God who rules and reigns in the heavens over all. May God bring about a new reformation in this hour, and God may He make you and may He make me to be expositors just like John Calvin. May the Lord bless you and may the Lord encourage you. And may you be a giant for God in your pulpit as you herald His Word. Let us pray. Almighty God, we humble ourselves under the great shepherd of the sheep. We understand that we are but under shepherds, that Christ has bought the flock of God with His own blood. He has laid down His life for the sheep. And they have been entrusted to our care that we might feed them the Word of God. May You use us to rightly divide Your Word and to graciously and pastorally feed them words of life. May our pulpits be a lamp unto their feet and a light unto their path. And may the Word of God be in us a fire within our bones. And may we live by eating on every word that proceeds out of Your mouth. Lord, I thank You for these men, their fidelity and their faithfulness to the gospel ministry, and I pray that You would make them stand strong in the tradition of John Calvin. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Men Who Rock the World. If you want to follow us on social media, I can be found at Dr. Stephen J. Lawson or at onepassion.org. Please join me next week for the next episode of Men Who Rock the World.